Be your own authentic, true leader and take responsibility for the outcome of everything in the business that you own. Mm-hmm. You can't do that if your head's in someone's mouth all the time. Yeah. What is it that you took from your military experience? Well, it was leadership and taking responsibility for the outcome. Follow the advice. What's the worst that could happen? There is no reward without risk. You can't work your way to wealth. I think you have to work and risk your way to wealth. But there has to be more to it than that. There has to be some social conscience to what we're doing, much like the outreach clinics in Afghanistan. There has to be more than the fight. There has to be more than the private work. There has to be more than the millions of pounds. What is in your mindset? What makes you take that leap? It's your first practice. You've never run a dental practice before. No, no, I hadn't even really worked in one. Yeah. Um, so how, what the hell? Come on, Sam, come on. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> why, why? Tell me, tell me um, why. I, Let's I, talk I just, about it. I just, honestly, yeah. um, I wanted to be in control and I wanted to control the money. It's, it's essentially honours and that's the cost you pay, but the reward obviously is profit. It should be 20% roughly. So 20% of two and a half million is nearly 500,000 and I wasn't doing any dentistry. Wow. It was running itself. I have a mantra where every nurse has to be on a course physically that day or booked on a course. Mm. And we create super nurses. Well, I say to you, man, do you want to work with super nurses or do you want to work with nurses that we don't invest in? Hi, guys. Welcome to Dentistry Unmasked. My guest today is the inspirational Mike Hesketh. Mike qualified from Leeds in 2004 the same year I actually qualified from Kings, but we didn't cross paths until 2019 when I met him uh, as a business coach on Business Coaching Course. Uh, He has an absolutely inspirational story. And when I listened to this uh, for the first time and and listened to his journey, he absolutely transformed my life, my practice, my my business journey. And uh, this, this podcast is actually split into two episodes because there's not one thing I wanted you guys to miss. So Mike uh, has actually served in the Royal Marines. He's taught Afghanistan and, you know, there's some great stories in there uh, just in itself. But he then, uh, once he left the Royal Marines, brought all these skills and all this knowledge and all this experience that he he, he gained while on tour and then applied it to the world of dental business. Uh, He has then, you know, used these skills to build a practice in just three years from from a very, very small practice to to one that turned over three million, and that was Exeter Dental Center. And uh, what a journey that was. And, you know, he, he shares a few nuggets uh, in, that, in that journey as well. So it's a great listen over two parts, guys. Don't miss this one. Uh, Mike has now set up uh, Hesketh uh, Healthcare Consultancy with his wife, Lara. Uh, they're a formidable team. Uh, give them a, a, a like and a follow on Instagram as well and get in touch with Mike if you want to know more about how to grow your dental business. It's certainly transformed mine uh, and uh, you know I really hope you get something from these two podcasts because I know I certainly did. Uh, I'd also just like to say uh, a very quick thank you to our sponsors uh, Unique Plant Training and Former Dental Supplies and guys I hope you enjoy these podcasts. Thank you. Mike Welcome to Dentistry and Mast. Thank you so much for, you know, making the five-hour trip. Yep, from Devon, yeah, five hours on the motorway for you, mate. Oh, thank you. I'm honoured that you uh, would, uh, you know, (laughs) give your time. So uh, thanks for coming. And uh, I'm just going to very quickly just talk about how I know you because uh, there's going to be many people who do know you. 
But there's going to be quite a few people you're you're new to the to to the whole dental media world. Yeah. Yeah. So I first met you. uh, You facilitated on Ashley Latter's one of Ashley Latter's courses, and uh, you know, I'll just tell I'll I'll tell you my first impression of you. Let me just tell you this, right? So uh, the Entrepreneurs Club. It's mostly practice owners. Well, it is all practice owners. Yes. It's all about running your own practice and running successful businesses. And then you rock up first day to tell your story. And I've just got to say that it was probably the most phenomenal story in dentistry that I've come across. Oh, brilliant. Which is Thank why you. I've invited you to to, to, to to come and talk today, you know, and, and this story needs to be shared. And, it, and for me, it was inspirational, and I hope everybody's going to find this story inspirational as well. Thank and obviously, you. the many projects that you've had and, and your ongoing projects as well. So we're going to talk about a lot of that today. Uh, but uh, please, can I start uh, by asking you, first of all, we'll, we'll go to the dental side of things, and then we'll go on to the personal side, side of things. So, so tell me about your dental career. Tell me about um, where you started. Okay, so yeah, yeah, I was a I was a Leeds graduate. We were just discussing. Yeah. We're filming this in Leeds, so it's nice to walk around the city yeah. and see how much it's changed. Uh, qualified in two thousand and four. Yeah, um, I wasn't the best student in the world. I did a lot of travelling um, during my course. I enjoyed travelling to Australia and uh, South Africa, and working in the outback um, in Australia and also in the high veld in South Africa. And I always felt like when I was doing my dentistry degree, I was always trying to find distractions. Hmm. Um, it was a choice. I went there when I was 18 and, you know, I didn't take a gap yet. And I just, you know, I always chose, I chose my A-levels to do dentistry. Um, I was good at sciences at school. Yeah. Um, and I thought, yeah, it, w- it would suit me, um, a caring profession, um, a scientific profession. Um, and I like interactions, you know, with humans. I, I enjoy sort of finding out about people and taking care of people. So I always thought it was going to be a good choice of career for me. Yeah. Um, if I'm honest the academic side of it and the actual practical um, restorative and all the different divisions of dentistry didn't always excite me hence probably trying to always find a distraction Mm. at university so that was my sort of um, dental choice and then in my third year of dentistry at Leeds one of the army recruiters came into the um, university and asked me about um, and did a little talk and saying we'll pay you an annual salary mm. um we'll put you we'll pay your tuition fees at the time which are about a thousand pounds at the time mm. um and then you've got to sign on the dotted line for seven years and at the time my brother was uh with the royal marine commando reserves out of merseyside and his best friend um had managed to do, have a really good career um, with the royal marines and going into the special forces and so I used to go drinking with these guys and they'd tell me stories. And then this chap in the Special Forces said, I think that Royal Marine Commandos have a dentist, but you have to join the Navy for that. So even in I was 20 years old, my third year of university, I joined the Royal Navy as an officer, went down to do the um, Admiralty interview board. As an undergrad, you did? As an undergraduate, yeah. Oh, okay. So then they, they gave me three years worth of salary, um, which I managed to drink my way through yeah. and pie my way through. And just about get through dental school. Um, and then I had a seven-year career in the Royal Navy right from age 22. Mm. I left Leeds and went down to Portsmouth, Pompey Carlo, down to the Sunshine. Um, mm. And I was straight into the Royal Navy. Pompey so, Carlo. yeah, my, my dentistry degree in Leeds was okay. I, I played more football for the university and did more sports and, like I say, more traveling than I did do studying. But um, I like the people. Yeah, um, yeah, and I was very grateful to the Leeds uh, Dental School for teaching me. Callum Youngson was a cracking professor at the time. Okay, yeah. It was brilliant. 
Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, didn't you think at that stage, though, to give seven years of your life was a huge commitment? Yeah, it felt like forever at that age. Mm. Yeah. Um, originally, when I started conversations, it was a five-year return of service. Mm. And during the paperwork, it took a while to go through. They said, oh, no, it's seven years now. Mm. But they'd had this recruitment phase where it was vocational training, and they'd double your salary. So at the time, the annual salary was 22000 for a um, vocational trainee in the NHS. And that's what everyone was doing around Leeds. Everyone yeah. would go to university, um, sort of tutors, practices. And then they said it was 44000 in the Navy. Yeah. So I thought, well, you know, there's a salary there. It's pensions. I was pretty clued into that sort of thing. And I thought, oh, I want to buy a property, my first sort of flat, which I did with my brother in Altringham in Manchester. Um, and there was so, so there were other benefits, but it was it was this thing where um, in the Royal Navy there are three commando units, um, and the one in Somerset called Forty Commando, that uh, their dentist had, was just about to leave. So I was in, I was already lined up to take that role. Um, so I knew that there was a career pathway for me with the Royal Marine Commandos because I didn't want to just be a dentist on a ship mm. um, within the broader Royal Navy. The Royal Marine Commandos are the infantry for the Royal Navy. So they're the elite. They feed about 70 to 80% of UK special forces. So you have 700 of them on the base and you're their dentist. So these are elite athletes. A lot of them, some of them have Olympic, Olympic medals in rowing and athleticism. Um, and yeah, so these are, and a lot of them are Oxbridge graduates um, and they do a return of service of four years. And so they're a really elite organization to work with. Mm. And I ended up spending five years of my career with 40 Commando traveling over the world around the world and i think that was the most formative time of everything that i talk about within the business consultancy that i run yeah. or running my own businesses yeah. dental practices okay and um so, so when did you leave when 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 did that so that was finish? yeah so that was two th i qualified in uh 2004 as we talked yeah. about and i left the royal navy in 2011 yeah so i did eight years i think um i had a um a very fulfilling career and that's called a short-term commission um the time that i did there i did the royal marine commando course so mm. i went and got the green beret um and where we currently live um my house overlooks the mud flats on the river x where we were crawling through and getting covered in mud and i was a dentist on a chunky salary and i'd be lying next to a British sniper or a um, RAF fast jet pilot or a padre, um, a vicar, um, or a, um, a doctor. Um, and you'd all be ch having this challenge and it was called the All Arms Commando course. Mm. So you go through this, um, it's almost like an abridged version of the commando course. It's usually 30 weeks. And what they say is in every four to six weeks is a criteria test, a physical test that you've got to get through. Most of it's in your head and most of it's technique. And with the all arms commando courses, can they break you? Okay. So you're already, it's like I say, a trained officer in the, in the military and can you keep up and can they break you? Um, and it's a bit different now. That was, you know, 13, 14 years ago, you'd hope that it would be a little bit, you know, a bit more um, sensible, but if you're injured, you're off the course. Mm. If you can't do the criteria test at the end of, instead of being four or six weeks, it was every week. So one week you do a nine mile speed march carrying weight. The next one you do a 12 mile load carry across Salisbury Plain or Dartmoor. So these physical stresses, it's a very humbling environment because whether you're 
I'm, I'm, a, I'm. Uh, it was a couple of stone ago that I did this course. Um, but I'm still looking great, mate. Come on, come on. Um, yeah, no, I need to get on the bike. Um, but yeah, no. So um, I do. Uh, I'm the average height of a male in the UK. And now this matters, okay? All the special forces guys are all dinky fellas because mm. they don't burn as much energy when they're moving. Um, if you're too tall and you're good at a load carry, um, then across the moor then you are you're good at that but you might not be able to climb the ropes and you might not be able to do the assault courses and the tarzan assault courses so it's a it's a very humbling experience and that was one of the things i want to do is that um one they have a bit of a new zealand all black sort of thing on a no on a no dickheads policy okay um the royal marine commandos they see arrogance as the enemy mm. you know there it is a um um, walk softly and carry a big stick sort of organization um, of elite. And when people go and do mountain leaders courses in the Arctic um, or they go and do jungle training or they do sniper training, they come back to these commando units and they spread the skill set. So you're already surrounded by elite environment people. Mm. And I was a witness to this for seven years. I was a witness to this high level elite performance um, and because I was an officer, as a, as a dentist, you go in as a naval lieutenant, um, I was in, in this environment where I, I would see high-level planning of moving uh, units around the world at a moment's readiness. Um, we, were, we, you know, we were in Sierra Leone, we were in the Congo, we were in Northern Europe, um, on the Baltic, um, and then obviously culminated in Afghanistan mm. um, when it was really bad in 2007. And it was all hands to the pump. And I felt like I had a very, very good stint at being distracted from dentistry. Yeah. And like, I, I was lying in a muddy stream being paid to be a dentist on Dartmoor. And, you know, um, but I would rather get that green beret at the end, get through the course, get the green beret, be part of the crew, um, and then use those skill sets. But I was always a dentist. I, w I would always do dentistry on the base and look after people. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. May, may, may I ask a few more questions about that? Yeah, sure. So, so, so in Afghanistan, was it like Afghanistan? Yeah. Or was it, yeah, yeah, it was really on bad. the peripheries of Afghanistan? Yeah. I mean, how does it work as a, as a dentist in the armed services? Yeah. Um, well, that was everything. So if you do the commander course, hmm. like I say, at Limps, then you get your green berry. And then um, if I can just rewind slightly, yeah, we we're on a ship off the coast of Africa on the Congo in Sierra Leone, hmm. and we were doing training there. And then overnight, the uh, all of the um, the flotilla went dark, and our ship was loaded with supplies. And then some of the darker side of life came on board, and uh, it just so happened that there was a warlord in Kinshasa in the con in the Congo that was going to take the city. Now. The Congo is a French dependency. Mm -hmm. So we made our, the biggest ship in the Royal Navy look really small. And uh, we hid off the coast of the Congo for two months, um, hiding from uh, the French, essentially. Saying, so we weren't responsible for evacuating those guys. But on two days' notice, we never had to go into the Congo and evacuate the embassy, but we'd built models. And my role as a dentist was as a medic. Because you don't realise it, as, as, a as a dentist, you, you know, five years of university you mm. can pick up wider medical training quicker than the young marine who then becomes a medic mm. who's like a paramedic okay okay so i did the paramedics courses um pre-deploying on that ship and the paramedics courses down in cornwall i did mine 
Um, the main method of injury was a road traffic accident. Whereas in the military, you then do battlefield advanced trauma life support where the mechanism of injury was blast injuries oh, and gunshot wounds. So you do all these courses and then we were what's called the medical party, but I was a right-hand person to the doctor in the command unit. And so my role would have been to be helicoptered in, be in one of the hospi hospitals just across the river, evacuation points, assess the people out of the embassy and then get home. Now, the reason I tell you this is because Afghanistan was really kicking off then. It was 2007. Mm. Prince Harry was attached to us um, to do a week's training. And what happened was we um, we were off the coast of the Congo. We decided the this guy wasn't going to invade Kinshasa. So we were helicoptered into Sierra Leone, into Freetown, jumped on a plane and straight back to the UK. And I remember I didn't even get to see my wife, Laura. Um, I literally was... Um, taxied back to the base in Somerset and that's going to stand in a field with Prince Harry looking at how to clear mines in Afghanistan so it was a quick transition from paramedics courses to jungle fighting to being at sea for two months straight back to the UK training to go to Afghanistan so that's the background to getting out there wow yeah, so yeah. There, there was a bit of stuff that went into it I had to render the 700 Royal Marine Commander was dentally fit as well <laughs> In between all that. Yeah, we had to do that. Well, we were, they were a captive audience on the ship as well, to be honest yeah. with you. So they were quite easy to treat. And I actually treated all the air crew as well. But um, yeah, so you render them dentally fit. And what you don't want is a group of 700 young men who you need fighting yeah. to be have dental injuries. And that's where the armed forces dental mm. care came from, from the First World War. I think the study showed that they lost 10 to 15% of their manpower from dental injuries in the trenches. And that was when all the armed forces dental industry was um, or groups were formed and it's a tri-service between the RAF army and the Royal Navy yeah. so yeah and then we deployed to Afghanistan Hi guys are you thinking about getting into dental implantology well if you didn't know I'm one of the founding members of Unique Implant Training Unique Implant Training is now in its fifth year and we are now fully EDUCOL accredited to diploma level which is an 18 month diploma the only 18 month implant diploma currently in the UK so if you want to begin your implant journey, please don't hesitate to give us a call. Find us at www.uniqueimplanttraining.co.uk. We look forward to seeing you soon. And uh, I mean, if you don't mind me just probing a little bit deeper into that, did yeah. you see anything which made you just think, fuck, this is, <laughs> this is serious? Yeah. <laughs> because my, my assumption was always just like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just go slightly off piece here. Mm. I, we've got quite a, a strong military heritage in my family. Right. Uh, my mum's brothers, my uncle, proper uncle is a brigadier in the Indian army. Right. You know, uh, both of my cousins. So his, his boys have, have, have gone into the army in some way, shape or form. Right. Okay. They've existed now. They've got careers in IT, but there's that heritage there. Yeah. So when that, you know, recruitment took place at undergraduate level. I was slightly tempted to just think, yeah. you know, shall I explore this? But I just thought, no, it's not for me. That's my that's my uncle's family. It's not my family, kind of thing. And uh, I, I never went down that path. Um, but I always assumed that being uh, um, a dentist attached to the armed forces would mean that you're at the base, would mean that you're away from the front line, would mean yeah. that you don't really get to see, um, you know, a lot of the. The, 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 you know the battle yeah. scars should we say yeah but well, it sounds like you did yeah i think i think my mum would assume that as well it's, yeah so i didn't tell my mum that i deployed forward yeah there was it was a bit like mash actually for the first um three months so the tv program and the american vietnam there was a 
hospital TV yeah. program. And it was all, um, so we're in a role three environment, which is a big hospital for, and people come off the helicopters injured. And that was to do surgery. And I was doing dentistry during the day. And it was a big base, 10,000 people. So there were 700 of us Royal Marines. Um, and then there was the rest of the army support services. And um, that was a, it, it was worse actually than the second three months that I spent. And the reason why it was worse was because it got so bad in the Helmand uh, River in the valley that all of the commander units, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, there's a hundred in each, right? And their support services, they're all in charge of forward operating bases around a place called Sangin. And Sangin was famous as a big battle that the Paras had taken control of. By the time we got there, we put satellites around it to protect it in the in the in the desert. Now, my day my day job was fixing teeth, mm. um, working in the hospital. But then the commanding officer of the Royal Marine Commander was like, "We don't know what happens to our lads as they go through the hospital when they're injured, gunshot wounds, or blast injuries. Can you stand at the end of the bed and be the casualty liaison officer?" I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, anything, anything I can do to help, anything I can do to help, that would be brilliant. And then in the evenings when my dentistry had finished, I'd go into the um, headquarters and I'd sit on a radio and I would process information from the signalers and pass that information via live text that would go up um, and also give the brief on where each one of our casualties were. But because I deployed with these guys, I knew them really well, they were friends mm. and there was officers coming through. And um, I caught up with a mate recently and we were chatting about it a little bit. I openly talk about it. That's why I cope with it. Um, and he was saying, yeah, they, there was a bit of a feeling that you'd um, you'd spent a lot of times at the end of beds of your friends. And then so in their wisdom, they said, we're going to send you forward. Mm. And they sent me forward. And they gave me a, a role called Officer in Command of Outreach. And the idea was to try and bring hearts and minds, um, support to healthcare, engineers, payments trying to help the local community with some of our advanced um, healthcare environment but to sum it up um, after I'd moved out of that role and I'd gone forward every road move we were on was ambushed or it hit a landmine whether it was Russian legacy from the Mujahideen mm. or whether it was from our um, um, where it's from the Taliban um, with IEDs every base I was in was rocketed Every foot patrol we were on, we were contacted, small arms fires or rockets. So we were caught in ambushes. Um, so my role was to try and, while well, they would have a big push somewhere else to try and get some of the bombers and some of the Taliban, they would use our force with the Gurkhas. So uh, the Gurkha engineers to try and help bring water to the little villages around these forward operating bases. And then, um, but the Taliban didn't see it like that. They didn't know what we were doing. They just saw us all on the ground. So they just, had a pop at us all the time and mm. so um yeah unfortunately there, there were men killed um rocket propelled grenades over my head Gosh. um lots of injuries um and i ended up being using that paramedic skills that i talked about earlier on the ground stretcher carrying away yeah um carrying people out with eye injuries gut injuries um and it's quite a strange environment is that there was people injured local population they'd be brought to the camp thinking we'd be able to help them and they'd be me and a junior doctor who wasn't even a gp and because we didn't know sometimes how these guys were injured they wouldn't send a helicopter from the hospital that i just spent three months in they wouldn't send a helicopter forward they wouldn't risk it so they wouldn't save these people some stood there uh, you know with this wagon full of like injured children and saying you're gonna have to drive all the way to kandahar or kabul 
knowing that they wouldn't make it, knowing that we couldn't really do much hmm. other than provide first aid to our troops and then ship our troops out. Some of the politics of it, it was just awful. Absolutely atrocious. Yeah. Did you ever get to a point, because obviously we've seen the aftermath of that now, right? Yeah. Did you ever have an inkling that, or did you ever have a feeling that, is it worth it? Is it, is it worth being here? Is, is Are we doing some good here? Is is this going to have a long term? Yeah. Um, um, no. I knew it was futile because all the studies on um, outreach showed that it was futile. Yeah. Even when we were trying to bring female medical clinics and we took medic female medics out on the ground. Mm. I knew it never had any lasting effect. All of the aid organizations say this. It needs a lot more infrastructure than we were providing, but it felt good trying. Mm. Um we were sent to do what we were told to do. Um, but if I'm honest with you, I thought it was under-resourced. We would go across land and find no Taliban, come back. And then the next day be IEDs there, you know? So there would be no dominance of the land, but it was, it felt like they staffed it with a m minimum amount of people they could get away with politically. Mm. And this is just Mike Heskiff's opinion on this. Okay. It felt like a training mission yeah. by the end. I felt like they weren't putting enough people into it to have a meaningful effect. And I felt so sorry for the injured and for troops on both sides and the deaths that it caused. And all we were trying to do was provide medical aid um, and not get blown up. Wow. Um, yeah, had some vivid conversations with friends in the backs of vehicles that, and we, we debated what were we willing to lose? And we said, oh, if we can get out of this, we're just losing one leg or below the knee, you know, really dark conversations. And that sounds quite traumatic now. But um, I think that experience helps me now. And in an odd way, it's because I often say, say, no one's dying, are they? You know, we're in business and it's risky. And don't get me wrong, it's risky in business and there's other social pressures and there's family pressures. Um, and so that then led on to an utter confidence in going into business, mm. um, which was the Exodus story that you heard. Yeah. I was almost a clean slate. Uh, yeah. So how did you, so, so, so turn, uh, I'm guessing then your service just came to an end because, yeah, so or, did, or did you did you leave because? No, it was, <laughs> no. I, do you know what? I, I was of a generation where we all got very lucky yeah. in that we got to do seed deployments. I did the um, membership of the joint faculties up in, in London, I did the membership in Edinburgh exams. The military paid for that. Mm. I also did MaxFax. So I came back from Afghan and I'd studied in the last month, sat in the forward operating bases. I was reading dentistry textbooks because I knew as soon as I hit the UK, two weeks later, I was sitting in an exam in Edinburgh mm. to do uh, membership exams of Edinburgh. So I, I mean, I was going to MaxFax um, and I went from working 24 hours a day in the desert to working as a junior doctor in Portsmouth underneath some fantastic consultant maxillofacial surgeons doing some cancer and trauma surgery so i felt like i got everything that i could out of it my wife and i lived in military accommodations which are relatively cheap mm. um lara um is is my wife and um she was the sort of driving force um behind the sort of creative um industry in the background with with my businesses that went forward and and laura was working in london at the time yeah. Um, and so we managed to live in a pretty cheap house in London um, and lived a sort of a lifestyle where I was doing Max Fax in Portsmouth and Laura was in London. So it just came and Laura was pregnant with Poppy, um, our first daughter. 
who's uh, turning 11 this week. Yeah, oh, um, Yeah, so it just came to, I felt like I got everything out of it. Yeah. I felt like I got my green beret. I felt like I deployed. I felt like I'd got academic qualifications. It paid me well. I felt it got everything out of me as well. Yeah. And I got everything out of it. Okay. Yeah, so, um, but I had no idea about business. Well, let's 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 go down there. So, um, you've you've done a, a long stint uh, with. I always I, I want to get this right with the navy first. Yeah, yeah. Right. Everyone says the army. I don't yeah, know yeah, because yeah. I think it's soldiering with the Roman yeah, commando. Yeah, yeah. So right. it's the navy and it's the yeah. yeah go on. So, so you've done a long stint there. Yeah. Then you've come back and you've now gone into Maxfax, which I didn't know that that, ah, that, didn't that know. about. You. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. Right. So how do you go from being somebody who doesn't really have that much of an academic in terms of like you told me that dental school was kind of ugh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which it is for a lot of people but I mean you you spent dental school avoiding it really which is one of the motivations for going into the Navy mm. you've now done your whole service in the Navy and you've seen some pretty you know amazing things yeah and had some some pretty out there experiences then you're going into Maxwax so I mean, people that don't know you, I'm just going to just, a bit of a spoiler here, you've had a phenomenal business. Yeah, that's great. So tell me about the seeds of that. How do you go from this person with a clean slate yeah. to building what was Exodental Centre and what, that, that phenomenal journey? So please tell me about that. Yeah, I think I also lent on the leadership training mm. and then being witness to fantastic leadership, be it young officers on the ground or be it courses. So the Britannia Royal Naval College gave me uh, my officer training the defense college i did a third of a masters there in initial staff and command course maritime so that was leadership in the maritime environment um and then when i left sort of fast forward i'd, I'd done a masters in business um, and i also did a coaching course in henley business school so i often do things and i don't know where they're going to lead mm. and i think this is for any young listeners is that just get on the course you know because one it, it broadens your horizon. I was a very narrow person, you know, you know, go straight from university, dentistry, straight into the military. Okay, seen some things, but it's always in the military environment. Mm. Yeah. So then you go into MaxFax, you go, okay, it was in civilian hospital environment. And I think broadening yourself and doing courses, whether it's leadership, whether it's business, whether it's um, Paul Tipton's clinical courses, which are fantastic, um, whether it's Ashley Latter's communication courses, all these courses are broadening that people should do, okay? And I did those. And I never always, Laura used to laugh, she said, I, know, I don't know why you're doing these courses. Mm. But I would use these courses then to go, right, okay, well, I know what good leadership looks like. I'm pretty well versed on good leadership now in an austere environment, in a, tr in a troubled environment. And so I used all of that knowledge to then find a business that, um, that I wanted to buy um, down in the, in the West Country. Uh, with Laura being pregnant, she was coming out of work and we had a house still in Somerset. So we wanted to move back down there. Um, and yeah, we just um, looked online, saw a practice for sale, a little one that we could afford. We'd saved up a, you know, a bit of money living in cheap accommodation and paid back the student debt and all that type of stuff. Um, and then ended up um, putting down on a little above a shop mm. dental practice um, in the city centre of Exeter. But I think I do think one of the biggest strengths is that I wasn't tainted by um, the way that the de dentistry industry is in the UK. Mm. Whether that's people always think they know how things sh should be run mm. or done, and this is how it works, some sort of stuff. Yeah. And because I didn't work in the NHS, I'd worked in the military. I'd I hadn't seen 
I, we only knew one standard, which was high standards. Okay, so a patient of mine in the military would go to another dentist. So high standards are critical in anything that we do. And I came out, and Laura and I went to look at a different practice where we were going to do a partnership. And and I said, do you know, if I buy that practice, it's going to be the end of my life because I can't cope with some of those partners and the way that they're tainted by the industry. I think that the standards aren't high enough. I don't think the building's neat enough. I don't think the staff are well-trained. I don't think the clinical work is good enough. Now, I'm not saying that I set the world on fire clinically. I'm passable. I'm a well-calibrated dentist. Mm. But um, I know high standards, and I know that I come across low standards all the time um, in the work that I do now. And and my biggest driver is to, is to raise standards of leadership, um, of being in control of your business, um, and then funny old thing, I, Laura and I discussed it and I said, well, let's have a crack at buying a practice because we can't do any worse. And if we, like I say, no one's dying. And if I don't want to work in an industry where we're working to low standards, where we're, where we're compromising, mm. be that the NHS or be that any other den plan, you know, that, you know, sort of um, the capitation schemes, that sort of thing. I don't want to work in the industry and I'll just quit and we'll, we'll go do something else with our careers and we'll go work in a different area. And I think that's the biggest strength is that when I pay for advice or when I'm trained on things, I follow it um, and I value it and I put it into, into practice. Um, I don't really question it. I follow the, I follow the advice. Guys, as you know, I am the lead tutor of the Hedro Academy Vertical Preparation course. Now, we have put together this beautiful vertical preparation kit, which has been beautifully made by former dental supplies. Simon at Former has kindly agreed to give one lucky winner uh, of this podcast a kit completely, completely free of charge, uh, which retails normally at £220 plus VAT. So all you have to do to win one of these fantastic vertical preparation kits is just give us a like, uh, subscribe to the podcast and share it and leave a comment below and we will pick one lucky winner every podcast and uh, Burkitt will be finding itself uh, in your clinic. Okay, so yeah, great guys. The Horacle Burkitt by Hedro Academy and former dental supplies. Can I ask? Mm. Um, because I've got you know my own courses and i've got many dentists who come and ask me about where i started out and um you know i've run a few clinics myself as you know yes um very successfully thank you <laughs> i think they could be better but i'm learning and that's how we met um but um you know the question i always get asked is you know when do you know the time is right to buy a practice and you know how do you go about doing it? And you, you've had all these questions before from, yeah. from people as well. So, you know, obviously my opinion is you're either just going to do it, you're built that way, or you're not going to do it. And mm -hmm. there are people that are built a certain way to, to, to go on that path and the people that aren't. But just again, listening to your story, I just find that jump and I just want to explore that jump that, you know, I, first of all, you know, you haven't got that much of a solid passion for clinical dentistry, but you're no. competent, you're good at it, right? Mm -hmm. You've been in the military now. And then now, now you, sorry, you've been in the Navy, right? Yeah. Same, oh, yeah. Apologies. Patchel, that's all good, mate. All good. <laughs> but you've been, you've been in the Navy. Yeah. Now you've ended that term, that, 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 those, those, all those years of service. And now you're just going to go and you've done some max facts training 
And now you're just going to take the plunge, which many dentists do not do in their whole career. And yeah. you're just going to go for it. And you're going to buy a business. And not only do you buy a business, man, you make a fucking success of it. Yeah. We're going to talk about how successful it is in a second. <laughs> but I just want to explore. I want to explore what is in your mindset. What makes you take that leap? It's your first practice. You never run a dental practice before. No, no, I hadn't even really worked in one. Yeah. Um, so how, what the hell? Come on, Sack. Come on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> wait. Why? Tell me. Tell um, me why. I, Let's I, talk I just, about it. I just, honestly, yeah. um, I wanted to be in control, and I wanted to control the money. Right. Because you think the military world's brutal, but the civilian world, especially around money, is a lot more brutal. Right. I was used to a salary. Mm. You know, and the paycheck at the end of the month would come in. And um, I worked in London, in West London, um, moonlighting. In my, you do gardening leave when you come to the end of your seven-year contract for a few months. And mm. I started to work in a local dental practice and I didn't get paid properly. Right. I got ripped off. But I was already paid. I was still paid by the military. But he didn't pay me. He, he did loads of... He did loads of um, it was the best thing he did, actually. It was probably the best £1,000 I spent. He, he kept the £1,000 of... Um, he's a well-known dentist. He has a group in Westland. I don't <laughs> tell where. Um, and, but he treat all his um, associates like this. And they all... You know, they didn't, he wasn't very popular and, and the places were run down. And I thought, oh, okay, this is the real world. You know, the real world's a lot more brutal than yeah. the military, really. Um, and I thought, right. I said, and I came home, and I said, when Laura and I talked about it, I said, we've got to control the money. If we're going to make a success of this, is that the standards are too low in this little pra these little practices, and the money isn't, con and we're not controlling the money. We can't be beholden to someone else that isn't a government organisation. So, um, what we did was I spoke to David Brewer of Frank Taylor and Associates. He's my broker; he always has been, and I've got to mention him because I, I like David. He's an Arsenal fan. Um, mm. I'm a Liverpool fan. Oh. Um, but <laughs> we're getting controversial <laughs> now aren't we um, but other than that he's brilliant um, and he's he's raised over a couple of million pounds for me now over the years David Brewer I really like him yeah. um, and so yeah he, he spoke to us we had I think 20 grand 25 grand mm. and if I'm honest with you dentistry's I knew it was an industry where we could financially dope it dope the practice is that if we kept costs low mm. Laura works on reception with a newborn baby um, just about got over that 10 years later um, and you know helped with the reception side of things um, and I bought a practice that was within my means so we paid a deposit of 10% David Brewer raised us 260 grand something mm. like that and then we bought a dental practice that had been on the market for two years um, and it was just a decision it's as simple as that I think people overthink things it's like if you get ever get frustrated with an owner who you know is not treating staff as well as you would, then you go, that's tick number one. Mm -hmm. I can look after the staff. Well, there's a lot of tools out there to do to manage money, financial command and control. Um, people sh should are surrounded by brands and identity, but they can put their own brand on a business. Okay, And they're the three pillars I find that dental practices are built upon. Now, I didn't know that at the time. I've sort of codified it now, having talked about this mm. incessantly over the years. Yeah. Um, but at the time, it was a bit of a no-brainer. Let's just buy this practice. It's cheap enough. The costs aren't too high. And what can go wrong? No one's dying. And the other thing is they put security against our home at the time. And it was just after the financial crash. And there was, no there was no equity in it. So we had nothing to lose. They couldn't take my dentistry degree away from me. I could still go and work as an associate. I think people... The fear, the fear of loss is so much stronger than the fear of, you know, gain. And I, and I, my fear of loss, well, my loss was a lot more dramatic, could have been previously, a few years previously. So 
I, I never feared it. Now, I would I would urge youngsters who are looking at this and say, well, okay, what are you really going to lose if you if you don't find something that you put your stamp on? Okay, what is the worst that you can happen? Okay, you run out of money. Well, you know, you could do more dentistry. You know, prop it up a little bit in the first couple of years. We all have to go through that hardship in the first few years. You all have to do far too much dentistry and it's all stressful and it's 360 degree pressure. So you can dope your business with finances by doing more dentistry, you know? So you look at it and you think, well, where's the risk? There wasn't a risk, really. Um, and with a blank canvas, Laura and I looked at it and we entered into it. Laura's very supportive over the years, has always said, yes, go for it, go for it, go for it. Mm. Never really questions decisions, um, knows that it will work out in the end. Um, I also think as well, there's a little bit of a devil in me in that the Romanian commandos have this little saying, and it's probably awful in, in, in today's times, but it pays to be a winner. Okay, so in Exeter, where we bought the practice, there was 10 practices within a mile of us. And uh, so there was 10 private practices. And you thought, do you know what? I fancy a crack at that. Mm -hmm. I fancy it making a bit of a stamp on it. No one knows who I am. I don't know any of the politics of the city. They all often have these closed markets where everyone does their thing and no one steps out of it. Well, I was coming into it and we were just going to chuck the rug up in the air, you know, and just absolutely, you know, change how Exeter's dentistry was delivered. Um, and uh, I don't think they saw us coming, um, that we literally didn't care about anyone's opinion about what we were going to do. We changed the practice. It was called Castle Square Dental. And we called it the Exeter Dental Centre completely arrogantly. But it pays to be a winner. Mm. And I think people are too timid. And I think people think too much about what people think of them. So that's what I mean by a blank canvas, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I got a business coach as well in 2012. Um, and again, Laura supported that. It was expensive at the time, but it was the best money we spent having a business coach. Um, I think everyone should have a coach. It's helpful. Now, it's easy for me to say I am a coach. <laughs> I do consultancy, but uh, pretty much everyone that I work with um, has a coach, whether it's, and, and I don't really mind which coach or consultant, so long as you have someone that fits you and your brand and, and, and gives you what you need, the support, because it's lonely as a business owner. Mm. And they'll give often see, oh, don't do that. We'll just steer you away from that error. So it was good that we had a coach. And like I say, we, he gave us a playbook. And I, I don't think he expected us to sort of finish with him so soon, but we, we had a playbook and we went for the playbook um, that he gave us. And I just said, okay, how do you do this? He said, do it like this. And I was the only one that, I was in like a little group because that was all we could afford. There was eight of us. And everyone was like arguing and like being quite cynical about the advice. And I was like, literally, we're all paying him for advice. Let's just follow the playbook. Mm. So I said to Laura, I said, I'm just going to follow what he says. Okay, because I don't know this industry. And we followed that industry. So uh, there's lots of little nuggets in there for people who are looking at doing a dental practice, who are starting out. But the what it gives you as a family, a small business, is just phenomenal as an industry. We are in, we are blessed to be in this industry, absolutely blessed. Because again, there's a lot of financial support available, um, be it through patients, through established broker markets. Um, but it's also very satisfying in that you take people out of pain and you help people. Mm -hmm. And you, whether it's aesthetics or whether it's healthcare, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting healthcare model. Um, and so I'd say to anyone that's starting out is to go for it wholeheartedly and don't worry too much about the downside. Yeah. So 
Yeah. So let's let can I can I can I ask you a bit more about then the growth of that business? Yeah, yeah. Because that in itself is a phenomenal story. Yeah. So how did you start out and what was in place and where did you take it? So it was three um old boy um partners who wanted to retire. Mm. And for the two years it was on the market, everyone was trying to get them to stay. And I think this is another top tip. Buy the business and let the partners go. So do the opposite of what the corporates do, especially if you're an independent. Mm. Okay. Because the worst three months were the, the month one, one retired, month two never retired, and month three, the third one retired. And they were the worst three months of owning the business. And we owned it for just four and a half years. It was turning over, um, I think it was turning over just shy of 500 grand. It wasn't in a, it was above a shop. So it only had like one of these little door entrances go up the stairs to it. And the dentist, bless them, had decided they didn't need to do a course in 30 years because mm-hmm. they were. Birmingham graduates and they were very good graduates and they didn't need to know anymore. I think, okay, fine. Different era. Didn't believe in the CQC, didn't believe in CPD. They knew how the world worked and they were great relationship builders. Well, that was a great opportunity because there's so much untreated disease in the patients because it was all patchwork quilt dentistry. So one, you then have potential. So another top tip is to look for the potential. You know, you don't really necessarily want someone else's vision that you pay a million or two million pound for. You want a rough diamond where you see there's a lot of patients probably on relationships where the dentistry is like, oh, you'll be okay. You know, we'll just patch this up. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was turning over 500K. We bought it for 280K. Every year it grew. So the first year it grew 300 to 800,000. Um, and then the next year it went to 1.2 million. The next year it went to 1.6 million. The next year it went for 2.1 million. And then the turnover eventually was going to hit 2.5 million, all based on high standards, change everything about the whole business. Don't worry about the staff that might not be on the journey. Hope that they come with you on the journey mm. um, and be welcoming and be supportive of them. But a lot of the time they're of the mindset and the culture of the previous owners. So um, we never had to sort of get rid of anybody like or you know go through disciplinary process as such. We just... Um, raise standards mm. and then because we raised the standards raised the standard of dentistry we recruited a couple of associates to replace the guys that left the partners we had a mantra where we refer no work out and what that meant was i had to recruit specialists or people who could do the most advanced dentistry implants um ortho and everyone then has a skill set we then open seven days a week now everyone goes what you made your team work seven days a week no mate what we did was we went on a five-week rotor where everyone had to work one weekend in five. And then they had the Friday and the Monday off of that week. And lo and behold, people liked those weekends because they could have a quiet weekend on a Saturday and Sunday in the city centre. And then what happened was we became the emergency centre for the whole of Exeter. And so you get so many emergency patients that the associates then wanted to come in on a Saturday and Sunday and they'd be paying the nurses extra to come in and nurse for them. So we'd end up with three or four dentists on a Saturday and a Sunday. But you have to have this mantra, again, it comes from the military, probably one in, all in, okay? So I had to work the weekends. Often I talk to clients now with practices, they say, oh, this is associates on a master's and he'll work the Saturday and Sunday. I'm like, that's not going to cut it. You've got to build a team of 10 clinicians. You need at least six surgeries for this. It's a full service practice and you need to refer no workout possibly as opposed to you know, lower eights and things like that and they need to go to hospital. And if you... If you can't, haven't got the clinical skill set to do it or the wear of all the equipment, then get it, mm. then recruit. 
To do that, you need a strong brand. So that's why we changed the name to the Extra Dental Center. We opened seven days a week. Um, but it became um, just your, your fixed cost then or split over seven days instead of five days. So there's all good business practices to it. Um, and then I, and what was interesting was I went from, when it went from 500K turnover to two and a half million in four years, I dropped a day of dentistry every year to the, pretty much, I, I got down to two days. I think I started at five, but only lasted six months at that. And then I got down to two days. And then for me, the right amount of dentistry was zero. Whereas a lot of clients that I work with, some of them enjoy implants or mm -hmm. vertical preparations on, <laughs> on ceramics, your raisin tetra. And they enjoy that. And they want to focus on their niche of dentistry. And that's cool. My niche of dentistry, well, I did a master's in business yeah. from Exeter University. It's not. My role is to take responsibility for everything that happens in that business. I'm responsible. If the staff muck up, it's my fault. If they're not trained well enough, it's my fault. If the, if the patients aren't cared well enough for, it's my fault. I'm responsible. Now, that's the cost that I pay mm. as the owner. There is no blame. It's my fault. The systems weren't good enough. And it became a very systemized practice, but with a heart and soul, I'd like to think. Yeah. Um, but uh, taking that responsibility is another thing for dentists looking at. It's, it's essentially on us, and that's the cost you pay, but the reward obviously is profit. It should be 20% roughly in a well-run big practice like that. So 20% of two and a half million is nearly 500,000, and I wasn't doing any dentistry. Wow. It was running itself. Mm. There's layers and layers and layers we could deep dive into, which I talk to clients about. Yeah how you get nurses running well, how you get the front of house team working well. Um, I'm really interested in the TCO concept now. I've been a bit of a Luddite with that. Um, but how you get clinicians working well, the quarterly clinicians meetings, the study clubs, how you build it on a good academic clinical background or baseline that they, then you can grow off. It then doesn't need you as an owner. Mm. It doesn't need Mike Heskov. It becomes the accidental center as a third party, as a brand. Um, and people take it far too personally that it's all about them and the harder they work. The only caveat to that is when you're investing heavily like we were, we're investing in marketing. We dominated Exeter for marketing. Um, we had 200 new patients a month. Um, mm. it, back in the days when it was difficult, pre-COVID. We dominated Exeter with marketing, but through Google reviews in 2012, 2013, we hammered Google reviews. We did SEO pay-per-click at the time. I know the market's moving in digital marketing, um, but it's interesting. Um, you know, we, we kind of just sucked all of the new patients up in Exeter, which pays to be a winner, you know? Um, and some well-known business owners tried to open up down the street. Um, didn't quite work out for them, um, unfortunately, but worked out for us. Um, and we grew a business that, like I say, had 10 clinicians, 40 staff. And I ended up doing the morning huddle with Poppy, my daughter, who went to cathedral in the cathedral school in the city centre. So I'd do the morning huddle. She'd sit in my office and then I'd walk around to school and then I'd go to the gym. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And, and we'd have these really super powered, um, young, young non-degree educated females running the business for us. So we would have... Um, a really good card of what I call sergeants. Um, you can sort of get a trend of, you know, this learning that I had um, from the military all the way through. 
can, can, you're touching on it now, and I was going to ask you this. So mm. let's can I, can I try and tie the two together? So yeah. what is it that you took from your military experience? Well, it was leadership and taking responsibility for the outcome. Mm. That's one. Yeah. Um, follow the advice is another. Okay. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah. Is another. Um, there is no reward without risk. Um, I think that you you can't work your way to wealth. I think you have to work and risk your way to wealth. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so you've got to take the risk. Okay. People think you know. I'll get wealthy and they look over the shoulder at other people by working harder and working harder. I'm like, yeah, you have to work, but you have to take the risk. And unfortunately, that's the price we pay. What does the risk look like? So what risks? Well, there's, you know, dentist, the dental industry is a small industry. You know, there's the, uh, you know, what you're doing here, you know, is, is a high profile podcast, which is fantastic. And there's always pressure from your peers. Mm. the courses that you've that you've run the courses that you've launched the businesses that you've launched in in leads very successfully is a risk because people look and people watch so there's that social pressure the peers there's the financial pressure of being able to pay the bills mm. um and then there's also the health pressure you know the toll it takes either on mental or physical health that it, and none of these are to be sniffed at um and i think they all equally weigh but I would argue that as an associate, some of the risks and some of the costs are worse. How much will you? How much do you, are you willing to sacrifice your life for? You know, fifty k a year, hundred k a year, hundred fifty k a year as an associate, putting up with someone else's standards, low mm. standards. I think that risk is greater. You know, because we are in an industry that's booming. Yeah, there's no shortage of patients. Mm -hmm. There's a shortage of clinicians, which we can talk about, and how to combat that. But there's no shortage of patients. And so, yeah, there's always pressure, isn't there? Yeah. Um, and you, you feel it as much as me, as, as we launch things and as we, we try and do interesting things that we find professionally stimulating. Yeah. There's always pressure. No, I'll be honest, I look at you and I'm just like, wow, how does he do it? <laughs> Honestly, I do. And that's why, you know, that's why, that's why you're here uh, talking to us about it. Um, can I ask a very specific question? And, and, and it's, it's kind, kind of like maybe, how come I haven't asked this yet? But this word leadership yeah. is banded about so much. Let's define it. What is leadership to me? And and what is leadership and how have you applied leadership that you've observed in your military training and, and, and how have you applied it to business? 